Innovate UK KTN Connecting for positive change Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Innovate UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm one of your hosts. I'm a science and technology television presenter. And I'm Susie Inver, a space physicist, and we'll be with you throughout this series, chatting with some of the finest minds about all things related to climate change. Yes, indeed. And today's finest minds are Andrew Zolli, who's the Chief Impact Officer for Planet, a company specialising in Earth observation data, and Titus Letapo, the founding member of the GEO uh, Indigenous Alliance, and is a champion of the community conservation model in northern Kenya. In this episode, we'll be talking about empowering and supporting Indigenous communities to support the preservation of the local ecosystem and to adapt to the changing world that we find ourselves in. Maybe we should ask our guests to give to give us a, a brief introduction uh, to themselves as we kick off, just so they yeah. can introduce themselves to our listeners today. Good idea. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Um, my name is Titus Letapo, um, a co-founder of Indigenous People uh, Alliance uh, that was uh, f- uh, founded by Indigenous representative uh, at the Duo Canberra Ministerial uh, Summit in 2019 in Canberra, Australia. Uh, the f- mission and well, the vision of the, uh, of the of the alliance uh, is to protect and conserve Indigenous uh, cultural heritage. Uh, by uh, by using uh, other observation science and, uh, data or technology uh, to create knowledge base that uh, sustain the earth uh, we live on uh, and again also to support the local indigenous uh, communities i also work uh, with an indigenous uh, organization called sarara foundation uh, which is working towards supporting the indigenous uh, people the samburu community uh, in conserving uh, the environment and also uh, finding alternative source of livelihood, uh, given the fact that um, uh, climate change is affecting uh, pastoralism and, and the movement of uh, livestock and wildlife. Great. Thank you very much, Titus. And Andrew, tell us a little bit about Planet. This is this extraordinary organisation that you work for or run. What's your, tell, us your, tell us what Planet is and tell us what you do there. So I'm the chief, what we call the chief impact officer at this That's organization. Sounds, sounds important. Planet is is best known for having depl- built and designed. So just, I should say, it's Planet has is best known for having designed and built and deployed and operating the largest constellation of satellites that look at the Earth uh, today. Hundreds of satellites that every day image the entire terrestrial landmass of the Earth and the near oceans at a little more than three meters per pixel. And then we operate a second constellation that can zoom in anywhere on the Earth uh, at up to 50 centimeters per pixel when we see things in, in that daily take of the whole Earth that are, um, are uh, important or intriguing uh, or might be pre-indicators of important change. But this satellite system sees essentially every forest, every field, every city, everywhere, every day. That's and when we, yeah, when, <laughs> when we use the tools of, uh, of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and, and remote sensing science, we can extract signals from all of that imagery. It's some 25 terabytes of data a day. You know what freaks me out? critically important. We talk about Earth observation all the time and, and we kind of get a bit blasé about it. And then somebody explains to me again about Earth observation. <laughs> I'm blown away again. The fact that you you, got, you can see every 
all of the earth, like the whole thing, like, and you can zoom in. Every day at it. three meters. My question for, for Andrew, though, is, is tell me a bit about Chief Impact Officer. What is what is your role there? What does that role involve? Well, you know, the, the thing that's interesting, so to, to, first of all, something about non-technical about the things we do, um, the, the first thing to say is that the mission, we're a mission-led enterprise. We actually started with a mission, not a business. And the mission is to use space to help life on earth. It was predicated on this observation that we were entering a century of extraordinary volatility and disruption, which translates directly into the kind of pain and trauma and disruption to people's livelihoods, to their sense of coherence and integrity, to, to their ability to flourish on the earth. And that in, an, in a situation like that, when we are facing challenges that are literally bigger than our cognition, we need tools to help effectuate, to, to shift toward a more a deeply sustainable and regenerative uh, uh, way of living on the earth. And in order to do that, you know, you need systems that help you see. So the, 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 what I think of as what we're building at Planet is kind of a big moral mirror that we hold up to humanity that helps us see our, our behaviors and ch see change really in context so that we can take effective action. And all of the ways in which we do that, that tie to things like biodiversity, climate, sustainable development, human rights, humanitarian, work. In one way or another, I help coordinate those activities with my team across planet. And we work with hundreds and hundreds of organizations in all of those sectors to help drive reductions in deforestation, to, to help indigenous communities take um, effective action and to bolster their guardianship of the world's most vital ecosystems and, and to improve um, the kind of information asymmetries that often happen in those communities where, where very moneyed and powerful interests have more and, be, more and better information than the communities who live in those places. Why? So the, the goal is, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just, there was a phrase you used, the, the, the moral mirror, which is like an extraordinary way of describing it because of, well, you know, you have a tool, but it's, I suppose it is the, the moral high ground, literally the moral. <laughs> Where does the sort of morals come in, I suppose? Well, one way to think about it is that um, we know that uh, information is power and data mm. is really unrefined information. And so by the sort of by the transitive property, you can think of data as unrefined social power. And so the question is, if if you are working with and producing information that can help people take informed and effective action that can help uh, hold people who are taking actions that are damaging to the earth mm -hmm. to account, you have a moral responsibility to ensure that they are that that information is as widely accessible to as many different people in formats that can be used by sure. as many different people as presumably though but the, it's the moral thing is the question though like you provide data but data is only as good as the, the the morals of the people who then use the data because there's there are bad actors who might want to use the data to do terrible things so it's not you're, you're not you are not the moral arbiters of uh, of this you are just providing information and whatever happens to that information is down to politicians and and who else Maybe, because I think, let, let me give you a metaphorical perspective. 
you know, scientists that study animals that swarm, so animals like bees and fish and humans, why do we all come together in clusters? And if you think about it, especially for, you know, the bees and fish and birds of the world, being together in one place is kind of risky because if you're subject to predators, you're clustering all of the predators' meals in one place. So why do animals do that? Well, a big part of it comes down to what's called the many eyes hypothesis. This is an hypothesis that says that when all the animals are swimming together or flocking together, they're able to see in all directions much more than any one of them alone. And similarly, if, you, if we can distribute information uh, in such a way that many actors have access to it, there's a deterrence effect. If you know that you're being watched, you may be less likely to cut down that forest. If you know you're being watched, you might be a little less likely to engage in illegal mining. And those forces that are responsible for holding people to account and for maintaining the order of systems have a much better tool for uh, going exactly where they're most needed. So similarly, we believe that when many, many, many actors have eyes on a situation, mm -hmm. that there is a, a much greater chance that the right kind of ethical behavior will occur, because transparency is the first step in accountability. I think that's a great analogy. That's, I like let's bring in Titus. I'm interested. So Titus, I mean, you, you know, you, like everywhere on Earth, you will have a, 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 a set of very specific issues and problems that are that are concerning you and, and, and the indigenous com communities where you're based. Can you just talk about, uh, from your point of view, the problems that you're, that climate change is affecting at the moment in, in Kenya? Thank you so much. Um, I think uh, as, a, as a community, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, we are pastoralist uh, communities, that uh, we, our main uh, livelihood uh, is livestock. Um, that's, that's our main uh, livelihood. And we depend on uh, rent land uh, for uh, pasture and water uh, the, uh, to keep our livestock alive. Uh, so one of the challenges that uh, we are currently facing as a community uh, is a, a persistent drought and um, rain that are not... Uh, um, predictable, uh, predictable because of uh, climate uh, climate change. Uh, rangeland currently is um, uh, highly degraded uh, because of uh, uh, livestock concentration and wildlife concentration and lack of rain, uh, maybe uh, vegetation cover. Um, they are the main uh, huge challenge that we have um, as a community is that uh, access to earth observation data um, that we can we can use. Uh, as my friend has been putting, uh, the, the indigenous communities require uh, this information uh, to make a sound decision in, term of, in terms of land management and even uh, uh, wildlife and livestock uh, uh, management. If we don't get the, maybe the data, uh, then definitely we, we, it's very difficult for us to, uh, um, to make a sound decision. You also find that um, uh, initially, uh, you'll find the communities uh, rely on uh, observing um, um, things like moon or maybe the, the stars in uh, trying to make uh, maybe decisions. But you'll find that uh, because of climate change, uh, this, this is no longer reliable. So if we can, have, uh, we can, if we can combine the traditional knowledge 
and uh, the earth observation data then the indigenous people will be able to to be will be able to make uh, uh, decisions um so basically those are the the main challenges that are coming out of out of uh, out of cl uh, climate change the other thing is that uh, uh, most of the indigenous people are not aware of uh, of climate change uh, we are not some of us are not aware uh, so there's need how when you say people aren't aware of it and then you come along and say well, okay we've got this problem and we've got these d different tools that can solve things how responsive are communities to it if it's if, if, if it for example it means changing the way they farm or changing their behavior generally are people happy to change for the, what might be the greater good particularly if it's a technology they might not uh, understand or know about um, I think, um, as I said, um, we, there's need for creating awareness, letting people understand that uh, climate change is real. Uh, because, uh, I'm saying this because uh, most of the pastoral communities uh, in northern part of Kenya and even other indigenous people, uh, their education background is very low. Uh, most of them have not gone to school. So even uh, interpretation of that data or even understanding the climate change um, that uh, it's real is also a challenge. Uh, I'm saying, personally, I'm saying that I, it, we are facing that because uh, I've gone to school uh, and I have the responsibility of uh, uh, creating awareness uh, within my community uh, to, uh, to, ma to make them understand that uh, climate change is real, uh, the impact is, uh, is being seen now, uh, and uh, it's not a gone, God's punishment uh, to, the, to the community, it's a climate change, because that's what the community, the pastoral say, this is punishment from God, uh, so there's no way we can reverse it. Uh, but again, if they are, make, they are made to understand, um, and uh, with, uh, let's say, availability of data and uh, tools that are user-friendly or maybe uh, relevant to the, to the indigenous people, then definitely the community will understand and uh, be willing to change and even uh, change their lifestyle, uh, even change the, the way they normally move from one point to another point. Because even at the moment, you find that uh, migration corridors for, for livestock uh, already closed uh, by uh, uh, infrastructure by the national government or governments. Uh, wildlife corridors are also closed, and because of that, uh, you'll find that the concentration of livestock and uh, wildlife is in one point, um, having a negative impact to to the land or maybe to the uh, to forest or maybe uh, the habitat are being destroyed because uh, livestock and uh, wildlife no longer move from one point to another point. So tell me a little bit, Titus, about how the Indigenous Peoples Alliance works. Is it bringing people together so you can have these conversations? Is it interpreting the data and sharing it with others? Because presumably, you know, the data that we get back is quite difficult to interpret and requires some expertise. So does the does your Indigenous Peoples Alliance help with some of these factors? Yes, we, our main role uh, is first of all is uh, creating uh, connections. Uh, between indigenous people so that, let's say, for example, Samburu tribe in northern part of Kenya uh, will link up with another uh, uh, maybe uh, indigenous community, um, let's say, in, uh, in Amazon or even uh, South Africa or other parts of the world. Um, and uh, you'll find that uh, the, the challenges these uh, indigenous communities are, are facing, are, in a way, they are similar. Um, so they, they can learn a lot from one another. And uh, also it becomes a for one voice that uh, demand for uh, even data sovereignty for, uh, for, for the indigenous uh, communities. Uh, the, other thing, the, other, the other thing that the, the, the alliance is doing uh, is uh, also creating an opportunity where uh, the indigenous communities will access uh, global observation data 
and uh, be able to interpret the data in a way that can be helpful to, to them uh, in terms of capacity, capacity building. Uh, so we try to bring these communities together. We, uh, we as, a, as an alliance, we still also have a, a challenges because we are still a young, uh, young alliance or a young organization. Uh, funding is, is still a, a challenge uh, even to uh, bring us together. Uh, we thank GEO, uh, uh, GEO because they have been uh, 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 of huge support to the, to the alliance. They even enable us to uh, create opportunities where we can network with other organizations that uh, uh, have other uh, observation data. So I think uh, we have those two, two roles, uh, bringing the indigenous people together so that they can share experiences and learn from one another. And again, uh, creating an opportunity for them to network with organizations that uh, uh, access or maybe can, can have free access to Earth observation data. Yeah, you said something interesting there, which is free access to Earth observation data. And I, and I think sort of one of the challenges of the community in general is that sometimes data isn't free or easy to access. So maybe we can bring Andrew back in here and ask you, Andrew, a little bit about what Planet can do to support organizations like, like the one that Titus has, has co-founded. Well, first of all, the work that Titus and other indigenous leaders are doing is absolutely essential. And it's worth, it's worth talking about this in the right terms um, before we talk about how the lots of ways in which access is, is being expanded and, and, and these new partnerships being formed. All around the world today, we'll just pick one example. Um, First of all, all over, all over the earth, uh, biodiversity is being lost. The UN in 2019 did a huge global analysis, a meta-analysis of all of the rates of biodiversity loss around the world, this organization called IPBES. And it found that the story is, is bad and it's acceleratingly bad. It's, it's, it's moving away from us. The only bright spot in terms of the places of, of the, the slowing of the loss, the rate of loss of biodiversity or the stopping of the loss of biodiversity, the only strategy that they found that worked was having indigenous guardians engaged in on the ground in, in places uh, around the world where they acted as guardians of vital ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Now, so we have a common global heritage and in that common global heritage, indigenous peoples and their representatives are playing the, a linchpin role, an absolutely, not just a marginally beneficial role, a central role. And so we have a common collective interest. If we had no other interest in supporting indigenous peoples and their representatives, just around the things that are our common global heritage, there, the leadership of indigenous peoples must be strengthened. And it's not just in biodiversity, it's in things like deforestation and the loss of, of forests that are common sinks of carbon that help us arrest the rate of climate change. And, and, and all of this happens against a backdrop of, unfortunately, a situation where the, if you look at the global map of primary contributors to climate change and those communities that are the primary recipients of the impacts of climate change, they literally look inverted. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. That is to say, the people, those societies that are contributing most to the problem and those societies that are on the receiving ends of the problems are literally flipped. Yeah. And it's unsurprising that those in the global north are principally responsible and those in the global south are principally on the receiving end. And, and indigenous peoples uh, whose livelihoods are often uh, like, like Titus's, whether they're, you know, pastoralists like, like, um, like in, in, in Titus's uh, community or in, in many others, these are communities that, that have longstanding um, ways of living and ways of being their human rights and, and livelihoods and ways of being alive on the earth and bringing all the diversity to the human family, all, right? All, all of that is at risk. So we have every single reason to do this. So the challenge is not actually today, the, the thing that's important, the challenge isn't data. We're producing so much data and that the process by which we're producing the data is itself accelerating. So the, the, the availability and the breadth and the coverage and the, the, the relevance of all the data we're producing has never been greater and it's only gonna become more so. The challenge is that you can't just sort of say, here, we're gonna dump a <laughs> bunch of data into a virtual dump truck and, yeah. and uh, like pour it out on the floor and here yeah. you go. You have to translate it into things that people can use to uh, improve their their adaptation and resilience to climate change, and and also to we have to say also to mitigate the effects of climate change. But presumably, there's also a lot of cultural stuff you have to con take into consideration because you plonk a load of data on one person's table, it's going to mean something. You plonk the same data on someone else's table, and it's going to mean something else because everyone has their unique problems and their unique challenges and. The, their ways of doing it, and that—that's—that that was my initial question about when you said we're the moral mirror. How do you how do you kind of deal with all that? How I mean, do you do you have a responsibility not just to provide data, but to 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 tell people to or convince people how to do things better or differently? The way we do this ultimately, you, the most important word you use there is the word together. So I, I want to just say a quick word. You know, when when we, we have a number of issues that we have to overcome. If, 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 the, if, the, if data is not the problem, but making the data actionable is the problem, what are the issues associated with making data actionable? Well, the first one is that a lot of the people who are making these technologies live in the global north. They live in the precincts of Silicon Valley and they live in, in you know, certain places where they candidly are technically very astute, but not terribly exposed to the way that people live around the world. You know, I've, I can tell you that, that there are a few people I've met who are more sheltered than the typical Silicon Valley engineer. Like we're, so you're making these big global tools, but if you want them to have effect in communities with, uh, in communities like Titus's, or if we wanna work in with Amazonian communities, if we wanna work with Pacific Island communities, we have to be, at the same table and we have to be at the same table with the same standing and historically it's worth noting that for hundreds and hundreds of years people have shown up from the global north saying i have the solution right and that th there's a there's a long history of understandable 
distrust sometimes mm -hmm. that that yeah. uh, that also has to be overcome yeah. so the way we have to do this is with we have to learn to speak each other's languages to understand each other's lives to have stakes and trust in each other we have to we have to literally invest in each other you know when we do these projects you have to break bread before you can start talking about solutions before yeah, you start talking yeah. about those things you have to build so trust. all of that work a lot of that work is the work it's it's not about you know do we have the technology it's about how do we build the conduits and then there's a process of designing it so that it's delivered in the right way so for example how do we overcome uh, access issues for uh, pastoralists right mm -hmm. so now so some people say oh well there's no connectivity that's not always true there there are ways of working and communicating even with people who do not principally live a connected digital life we just have to design for them so i'm deeply optimistic and part of the reason that titus's organizations and and related organizations are so important is because they form this critical translational bridge between people who un, who, the, who who have the the tools and technologies but don't have the context and people who are living in the context but don't have access to the tools so we need lots more tituses to, in the world um <laughs> I, I think i think and we need to agree make that. every titus as a, yeah and we need to make every does, every everybody like titus does titus does titus powerful. does titus in this community know how important they are they're not they don't feel like oh this is all being imposed on them do they appreciate titus do, do you appreciate what andrew's saying about the you, you know uh, being a being a linchpin, not just um, not just a kind of target for all of this, but you're actually you know central linchpin. Yeah, I I agree with uh, with uh, with uh, Andrew, um, and I think the uh, what makes me happy is when he said that uh, bringing the indigenous people on the table, uh, so that maybe we uh, we discuss together and uh, find the best way of making uh, the data uh, available and uh, even enabling the community to use that uh, data to make uh, sound decisions. Well, Titus, I have a, I have a question for you, actually, because I think that you were involved in a, in a hackathon, right, to, 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 to use EO data and, and produce an app. Can you tell us a bit about, about that project and what you came up with? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm coming to that. Um, so I was saying that it's very important that uh, uh, we have, uh, as, as even um, like, uh, as indigenous people, we have people like Andrew um, who are willing to sit down with indigenous people. And uh, I was in, in Bond uh, on, uh, on 23rd to 26th on a, on a Living Planet Symposium, and uh, we met with some uh, lecturers from the UK. Uh, and we were, try we were discussing uh, at the side on uh, how best uh, maybe the universities can frame uh, research uh, questions uh, to fit into maybe the community or indigenous people needs, uh, other than maybe research questions or research being guided by availability of funds. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, Andrew is uh, alluding to, that uh, we need to sit down and uh, look at the problem and even develop the solutions uh, together. Um, uh, as you said, that I presented a, um, a challenge uh, to in an agathon, um, wanting to address uh, the current situation that we are facing as Samburu uh, people, uh, because uh, data is not accessible, 
um, people, there, there is no network, maybe, or maybe there, there are no, let's say, mobile signals or even uh, ne network coverage. Um, and the people have not gone to school. So we wanted to develop an application which is uh, culturally relevant to, to the community and to the people uh, by combining uh, symbols, um, uh, wildlife symbols or livestock symbols, uh, in uh, trying to locate uh, where the where you are, uh, and even to locate where markets are, uh, and even the government can use the same application to locate where communities are, especially when uh, there is a, a disaster. Um, I can give an example uh, of uh, 20, uh, 20, 2020 when we had a locust uh, in infection into uh, into Samburu land where vegetation has, was being cleared, and FAO, FAO was struggling, and the government was struggling to locate where these are, where the swarms are, uh, or where they are located. So that's, that one also motivated us to try to start thinking on how we can support the local community uh, to have a, a cultural relevant application that can be used to maybe to pass messages to, to the community. And I think these are the things that uh, maybe when we're sitting at the, at the table, we can be able to uh, discuss on how best that can be that can be supported. Uh, and the application is called Namunyak App, uh, which is purely owned uh, by the community. Uh, the challenge was discussed by the elders, and even uh, even uh, the, the symbols were being drawn by uh, a local artist, uh, uh, symbols of wildlife, symbols of animals, um, which can be used by, with, this, uh, with, with the application. I'll just say, you know, Susie, I, I, it's exactly that kind of, that, the, Titus is describing that exactly the translation that, that these um, technologies need. You know, the, the, without that translation, the tools have very little relevance. If you can't actually get them to work in idioms that, that ordinary people in a community. I don't mean, you know, non-technical people. I mean, in every community, every, every community everywhere on earth, you know, or if we want to effectuate a transition to a more sustainable and a more resilient future, it's gonna require every community to take decisions a little bit differently. And, to, and in order to do that, um, it, it can't be up to scientists prognosticating you know it's not it's not up to um, uh, people in, in Silicon Valley to do this kind of work it's up to uh, ordinary people who make decisions differently on Wednesday than they did on Tuesday and so um, it, this is this is you know we don't give um, Nobel prizes for translation right but we should you know the, the the ways in because because it's the thing that actually makes the difference on the ground. Can you have you got an example, Andrew, of of a community or any group of people who've done something extraordinary with the data that that you that you've provided? Something that you like to talk about, or something that's you know gone beyond what you thought was uh, possible, even. Sure. Well, you know the, the the first of all the the things that we have worked on uh, so far have been designed to help address big global contexts, but, but being able to provide the data that allows local communities to act on them. So, you know, a good example of this is, um, I'll just mention one example, the, uh, something we did called the Allen, we've worked on called the Allen Coral Atlas, 
named for Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft. Um, as you may know, coral reefs are one of the uh, most exquisitely vulnerable ecosystems uh, subject to climate effects. And, and around the, that's because they're in, uh, exquisitely sensitive to heat and they're exquisitely sensitive to ocean um, acidity. And both of those things are caused by climate change and they can't really move. You don't see coral reefs picking themselves up and moving to a different place when, when climate effects come uh, to, the, to the area. And so, uh, and yet we didn't have any good tools for mapping or understanding um, uh, where, all the world's where all the world's reefs were. We actually didn't have a singular map or monitoring system. So we built one together with a team from Arizona State University, the University of Queensland, a number of, of NGOs all funded by a group called Vulcan. And today there are more than 30 uh, new uh, efforts underway to build new uh, marine protected areas around the world that, that take human effects off of those reefs. And, and the other really important thing is that a lot of those places uh, are places where indigenous people's livelihoods and indigenous people's guardianship of those communities is absolutely central. So provide, you know, we, the, that mapping effort couldn't have been done without the assistance of numerous indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And now that it's done, it, it does something that's really, I think really powerful. And I, I, this, is, this is one of the things that I think is worth noting. We, Titus's examples in, in, when he was speaking a moment ago were, about how do we provide information to local communities to you know, uh, encourage the right behavior. But it's also the case that there are huge information asymmetries and, and often indigenous peoples, and I, I wanna be very clear that I am speaking to those communities and not as an expert. And you know, we should never substitute a third person voice for a first person voice about, about the, what's happened in indigenous communities. But speaking from our own observation, um, indigenous communities are often subject to significant dislocation and disempowerment by formal government authorities. In places like Brazil, for instance, indigenous communities um, are, are, as we said, vital guardians of, of ecosystems, but when large moneyed interests in mining and logging and timber and other things come into their, into their territories, they, they often don't have the ability to fight back. And sometimes the information is enough to be able to go to a judge and say, this activity is occurring, it needs to stop. Sometimes it's enough to have the information and say, we have the documentary evidence to stop you or to take to the press or to just guide us to where you're actually engaged in this behavior. And so we're doing, we're seeing lots of things like that on the ground with these tools where, where it's not just about bolstering biodiversity or maintaining intact ecosystems or even helping indigenous peoples adapt to a changing climate, it's also fighting back against real incursions into uh, indigenous territories and uh, improving data equity and data sovereignty to, to say, hey, you, you might be a multi-billion dollar corporation and normally you'd have way more information that we do, but now we have the same information that you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of parity is profound. And I think we're just, you know, in Brazil, for instance, 
I was just talking to a, one of the lawyers who um, he, he managed to, to fight the case to get indigenous peoples standing in the courts. The, the indigenous peoples didn't even have the right to sue. Wow. They had to be represented by the government, but mm -hmm. the government was often the one giving permission to these you know, organizations that were making incursions in the first place. Yeah. So now they have the independent standing to sue. And now the satellite imagery gives them the independent evidence to go after people who are engaged in in uh, negative behavior. And so, as I say, th this is importantly about climate and biodiversity, but it's also about human rights and sovereignty. And those things all go together. There are some amazing examples of that I've seen across the area, you know, fishing, people illegally fishing and, and modern slavery and, and all these kinds of things. Suddenly, EO data is starting to, to, to come into to uh, to help us tackle it. I know, Susie, you've been involved in uh, some of these projects. Yeah, I have. And, and it sounds like actually one of the themes of our podcast more broadly is collaboration and how can we work more collaboratively. And it sounds like what you're both describing actually is a real collaboration between the earth observation community and the local indigenous community and a real respect and mutual exchange of information and data. And, and it sounds like you know, driving this sort of collaboration forwards is what we need to do. I'm interested, Andrew said right at the beginning he was an optimist, which makes me happy. And I just wonder, I mean, Planet do amazing things as we, as we discussed in this podcast. I just, I'd like to give you both a kind of magic wand. It's a limited magic wand, I'm afraid. You can't just solve climate change. It's not that powerful. But I'm interested what you would like to, if you could wave what the next sort of five years would be like from, from where you're standing, what you'd like to see, what improvements would you like to see, what things would you like to end and it could be from a you know technical point of view or or, or or a more general point of view yeah i think i can go first um so on a layman uh perspective um or an, an indigenous leader um um possibly what i want to see um is again uh the rangeland for example where my community life relies on uh, becoming more productive again, um, seeing uh, vegetation cover coming back, and again uh, the community being able to access uh, other observation data easily uh, and having tools that are um, that can uh, that are user friendly that can be used uh, very well by by the community without even uh, 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 being supported to uh, to do that. Again, uh, we. We would like to see maybe within the next five years a healthy, a healthy community um, and um, a healthy wildlife uh, that are thriving uh, together, um, and, a, and a community that is aware of uh, uh, climate change and with the best solutions that are, that can help them uh, maybe cope or adapt uh, to, uh, to climate change. So that's basically what I want to see. Are you, are you optimistic that you'll get there? Are you optimistic that things you've just talked about, things like um, ease of use and, and actual real real world solutions, will happen? Are we on that? Are we on? Is the direction of travel moving that way? Uh, definitely, we 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 will be there. I'm sure that one day we'll be there with like-minded organisations uh, and even uh, uh, groups that, uh, as Andrew has put uh, in rightfully, that uh, people sitting together uh, discussing and uh, maybe coming up uh, with uh, joint solutions 
uh, and the best um, with the best approach uh, with the communities. So definitely we will be there. Uh, we we have so many organizations also trying to build capacity of local uh, local communities in terms of uh, climate change uh, and uh, developing solutions uh, together to address uh, the impact, the negative impact of uh, uh, climate change. Uh, governments are also currently, in a way, are trying to listen, though not uh, not hundred uh, percent. But again, uh, with the right with with facts uh, from uh, organizations, huge organizations like the UN, like a geo, uh, like uh, Planet, um, uh, with the right information, they will be able. Even the government will listen uh, because uh, uh, we'll all be affected. Even government officials uh, are being affected. They they are also feeling the impact of climate change. Perfect. Great. Well, that's, that does sound optimistic, Titus. We look forward to updates over the next few years. And Andrew, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, maybe a philosophical point um, as well as a practical one. So, you know, today we, we're talking, the, 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 the wrapper on this conversation is about adaptation and resilience. And today it's important maybe to zoom out for a moment it's adaptation and resilience or what? Well, the or what piece is mitigation, right? It's today the, you know, the huge portion, the overwhelming portion of the discussion and the resources and the attention and the focus is on trying to stop the root causes of climate change. And that is uh, no doubt uh, important. Like we, we will never get our way out of the situation um, if we don't stop the underlying contributing factors to climate uh, disruption. But it's also the case that many vulnerable people, uh, are, are, you know, increasingly vulnerable people are experiencing pain and disruption and loss. And so if we don't have an increase in adaptation and mitigate adaptation and resilience, that pain is only and that suffering is only going to increase. Mm -hmm. That dislocation mm -hmm. and that disruption is only going to increase. So, I first of all, I think you know one one hope that I would have is that we rebalance the shift between mitigation and adaptation, realizing that that um, we can't solve the problem on the backs of poor and vulnerable people. That's, that's one basic thing. I think the second part of that story is something that you heard Titus say a, a minute ago, which is this underlying theme of restoration. You know, the, the, the narrative that we've had around these issues is one of loss. And success counts as slowing or stopping the loss, which is sort of the right if that's true in as much as you're talking about you know like a patient that's in an emergency room like if they're if you've had a you know an artery cut you had better stop the bleeding or or worse things will happen but we have to be able to also move toward not just uh, documenting the film strip of doom with earth observation and not just slowing the rates of of pain and disruption but but restoration and regeneration, that those things are possible, that the re-greening, that the, that the restoration of ecosystems, that the, that the restoration of livelihoods and um, that, that human and flourishing in the entire web of life is possible again. 
And so the places I think we're going to see those successes are through the efforts of, of people like Titus and organizations like the ones that he's building. When, when in the next five years, the thing that I'm so excited about is to see more of those positive use cases, those positive outcomes, those places where instead of paying attention to the 90% we've lost, we can pay, atten pay attention to the 10% that we've restored. And, and in so doing, begin to build the, the, the playbook for, you know, the, the re-flourishing and, and re-greening and the restoration of, of uh, the earth. I feel really optimistic. That was lovely. <laughs> I, feel, I feel really positive. Uh, Titus and Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting hearing you talk, talk uh, today. It's been absolutely terrific. And uh, yeah, I just, I'm coming away with lots of positive vibes. Okay, thank you very much to Andrew and Titus. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And of course, thank you too for our listeners for joining us as well. Don't forget, you can get in touch with Andy Bennett and Luca Padello at KTN if you'd like to collaborate on any of the themes that we've discussed today. There's also a publication that goes alongside this podcast series. It's called Net Zero and the Power of Place. And you can find a link to it in the podcast description. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.